you know, me, the mob and the music title. That's why the provocative title is because it was uh, kind of a scary place to be. If I had been older and smarter, I'd have probably been a lot more scared. Welcome to Something Will Happen, a podcast about the largest Beatles music festival in the U.S., Abbey Road on the River, celebrating our 20th anniversary, May 26th to 30th, 2022. I'm Melissa, one of the organizers of the festival, and I'll be talking about all things Abbey Road on the River, held every Memorial Day weekend in Jeffersonville, Indiana. Whether you're new to Abbey Road on the River or you're a festival regular, if you love the Beatles as much as we do, you're in the right place. This is Something Will Happen. Something Will Happen. Let's get started. Hey everyone, this is Melissa, and I am so excited about this next episode of Something Will Happen because... Gary Jacob and myself got to interview none other than our headliner himself, Tommy James. And it was so amazing and such a privilege to have him on the podcast with us. Um, We're so excited to bring him to the festival this year. We've been literally waiting since 2019 to see him perform. We'll talk about that in this conversation. And he was so nice and told so many cool and funny stories about his career, his book, his music, and even his ties to the Beatles. So we'll get into that conversation. But first, I wanted to explain just how amazing and epic Tommy James's music career has been. And you can read it in his book, Me, the Mob, and the Music. But I don't know if everyone knows how cool Tommy James is. (laughs) His music career spans over five decades he has had 23 gold records nine platinum albums and over a hundred million records sold worldwide he's also had 32 billboard top 100 hits including crystal blue persuasion i think we're alone now hanky panky crimson and clover dragon the lot money money it's just like you know every song that he has done. And many of his songs have been covered by artists all around the world, including Prince, Bruce Springsteen, Joan Jett, and Billy Idol. And his music is heard in 31 motion pictures to date, numerous television shows such as Breaking Bad, The Simpsons, and in countless TV commercials. Tommy's critically acclaimed autobiography, Me, the Mob, and the Music, was listed on Rolling Stone's best music memoirs, And he came out with a new album in 2019 called Alive, which is amazing. You should check it out. We talk about it a little bit in this conversation. But without further ado, let's get right into it. Here is myself and Gary Jacob talking with the legendary Tommy James. Take us away, Gary. I I came to your show in uh, the summer of uh, 19. 19. That famous place in the middle of Pennsylvania, Jim Thorpe. What? what, Oh, yeah. Penn's Pike. Penn's Peak. Penn's Peak. Yes. And uh, I'm the national rib cook-off guy. You're kidding. Yeah. I did the, I, you mean from Cleveland? Yeah, so we, yes. I used to, I remember doing the rib bake-off. So that's how I wanted to start with you. I wanted to tell you that you're, when you played that event in 1985, that was the first major concert yours that I ever booked. And I've really? obviously done a lot since, but you were the first major act I ever booked and uh, obviously remember it vividly. But when I met I you at Jim Thorpe, you told it. me you had memories. I not only have, I, well, first of all, did you make any money? 
<laughs> Tommy, it, it was raining when uh, you were supposed to come on and I was more depressed than I've ever been because it was my first big show. And then my production manager said to me, you know, you really ought to go outside and take a look because there's 5,000 people holding umbrellas. So we did well. well. That's good. Well, you know what I remember about that uh, particular date was that Willie Mays was on the show as well. Yeah. Willie Mays and I signed autographs together there was some event in the afternoon uh, before the show, and Willie Mays and I signed autographs for about three hours. <laughs> and uh, um, oh, he signed a bunch of stuff for me—baseballs and—and uh, it was really an amazing moment. What a thrill for, for both of you, right? It was for me. I can tell you that. He, and he's and he's still alive and well, which is great because we've lost yes, so many. Indeed. of Well, it's good to see you again, too. Thank you, Tommy. And uh, we're so excited. We we made the arrangement to book you in 2019. So this has been three wow years that <laughs> yeah. we're waiting for this show. Well, great. I I hope we're all alive by <laughs> May. What is it? May 28th. May 28th. Yeah. yeah, we only have one more month, pretty much, to to wait. Yeah, I know a lot of people are really excited about about you coming to the festival. Well, thank you. Um, and this will be your first time at Abbey Road on the River, um, which is the biggest Beatles festival in North America, if not the world. So is that right? Um, yeah. So there'll be over 50 bands performing on six stages and um, they'll be covering all the different Beatles albums and the solo career. It's Paul McCartney's 80th birthday this year. So we're celebrating that. But, oh, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, and I know you're a big Beatles fan yourself. So, um, what is your? I just met Paul a, a few did. years ago at the uh, at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Uh, Paul was inducting uh, Ringo. Oh, okay. And uh, into the Hall of Fame, and uh, that's what they do—they induct each other, you know. <laughs> so, uh, basically, and I—I I was with Joan Jett. Joan was being awarded that year too. And we did Crimson and Clover together. And oh, cool. uh, that was quite a night. So, but Ringo, Ringo, uh, both Ringo and, and Paul were there. I met him for the first time. I had met uh, John before, and, but I never, uh, I never met Paul and, uh, and certainly never met Ringo. So it was a, a real kick. They're great people. They're so skinny, you wouldn't believe it. <laughs> they are this thin. I mean, they're vegans, you know. They always they were. Uh, <laughs> they're amazing. That Englishman in them. Yeah. Yeah. I just saw a picture of George Harrison from uh, like the late 70s standing with Chevy Chase and he was on Saturday Night Live and he like, he, he must have weighed all of 135 pounds. Yeah. yeah. I know. And I don't know how those guys do it. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, something about what they eat. I don't know. <laughs> you would think with all their money, they'd be really pigging out by this time, wouldn't you? <laughs> right. Um, Gary, go ahead. You well, also, I, I I know that there were some other Beatle connections. I, I think you talked about once before with, um, yeah. maybe, with George. George and Harrison uh, and a group that he was producing, Grapefruit, wrote me a whole bunch of songs after Moni Moni was... Uh, uh, number one there for so long. And uh, in Britain, uh, and his group, Grapefruit, wrote me a whole batch uh, of songs. And uh, um, so George wrote me a, a bunch of these songs. And uh, 
delivered them to my manager. I never got a chance to meet him and I never got a chance to thank him. Uh, the, the only problem was they all sounded like Moni Moni. And by that time we had sort of moved on to Crimson and Clover and we're kind right. of in a, a different, uh, you know, a little different style by that time. And I wish I had done at least one of the songs. We never, we never did it. But I and I never got a chance to thank him. It's one of my big. Did Grapefruit regrets. write the songs, or did George write the songs? George, well, George and I think with one of the members of the group. Wow. Oh, okay. And then you have an experience with Linda Eastman, right? She was my photographer, <laughs> right? For about for oh, a little over a year, and uh, she took the. Uh, the single uh, a shot for I think we're alone now on the singles jacket and uh, just a whole bunch of publicity shots. Uh, we were the first group that she did a, in a studio. She had been a sort of a street photographer before when she was Linda Eastman, but uh, and she lived in my building in New York. And uh, so we became friends and she uh, took a whole bunch of our uh, publicity shots. And then she met Paul, and that was the end of that. <laughs> she was gone. You must, right. you must have been flabbergasted when it, yeah. she wound up with Paul. Yeah, how crazy. Yeah. Yeah. yeah Who is... knows? You could have been uh, the you could have been the lead of wings with Linda. Well, that's true. You know, <laughs> Paul had a lot more money though by that time. Oh. <laughs> yeah, they were already doing pretty well. So were you. Tell us about the uh, almost land, the Woodstock that you were almost going to play, I think. Is that right? Yeah, well, I got a, we were in Hawaii at the time and Crystal Blue was number one. And wow. so we were flying pretty high and uh, uh, in the middle, of, we, we were doing uh, two dates in Hawaii and they were separated by two weeks, uh, one in Hilo and one in Honolulu. And they put us up at this magnificent mansion at the foot of Diamond Head. And uh, so uh, my secretary, uh, Joanne, calls from New York and said, listen, Artie Kornfeld was up. Artie was a friend of mine. Yeah. And uh, he was also one of the principals on, uh, you know, on Woodstock. And uh, she said, uh, Artie was up and said, we ask if you, they'd really love to have you come and play at this pig farm in upstate New York. <laughs> I said, what? <laughs> Did you say a pig farm? She says, uh, yeah, you know, they say it's going to be a big gig and uh, a lot of people are going to be there. I said, well, I'll tell you what, if we're not, you want me to fly 6,000 miles and play a big farm? I said, I'll tell you what, if I'm not there, start without me. And I laughed and, uh, and they did. Yeah. And by the end of the week, we knew we screwed up really bad. Well, you were still were in Hawaii, so you didn't screw up that bad. <laughs> well, yeah, it was a consolation, I guess. Right. But I, I probably over the years have gotten more mileage out of the story that we didn't do it than if we actually had done it. So I guess that's okay. Uh, that's great. I was there. So were you? Yeah, I was there. Were you really? I went in 69 and I was part of the production team in 94. So I'm, I'll be darned my own Woodstock stories, I guess. <laughs> right. and, uh, wow. So I read your book uh, a few years ago and uh, I loved it. I loved every bit of it. And 
Thank you. I, what what amazed me though was your photographic memory. As I was reading the book, I kept saying to anybody who would listen, it is amazing that Tommy James remembers his whole career so vividly. Well, you know, uh, when we started the book out, Martin Fitzpatrick, my co-author, and myself, uh, we were going to call it Crimson and Clover, and we were going to write a book about the hits and about being in the studio and everything. And we got about a third of the way into it and realized that if we don't tell the roulette story, uh, which really is the story, uh, that we were cheating ourselves and everybody else. And uh, I was a bit nervous uh, about, you know, about, about talking about roulette and all the characters and the people that, because uh, we were really trying, we were walking on eggshells for a long time up there. You know, we'd see things. And, that we couldn't talk about. All this was going, while we're hanky-panking and moany moaning and all this stuff, we uh, had this very dark story going on behind us that we couldn't talk about. So uh, I was kind of nervous because these guys were, several of these guys were still alive. <laughs> you know, they were right. still walking around. So by the, uh, uh, the end of 80, excuse me, by the end of 2006, uh, all of the roulette regulars, as I call them, had passed away. And so I felt that we were okay to finish the book. And we did. And it was very important to get it exactly right and to not overstate things or understate things, but to you know really tell the story and to try to, uh, uh, to get it that everything exactly as it was. And so we... Uh, uh, we got to work and we finished the book and uh, all of a sudden we started, uh, we, we went for a deal for a book deal and Simon and Schuster, uh, took the book and, um, uh, we were thrilled about that. And then suddenly we started getting calls for the movie rights and the Broadway rights. And, uh, so things just, uh, really, progressed and the book's still selling today. I can't believe it. It came out in 2010 and uh, it, it is still selling today. It's been like a sort of like a classic album, you know. Rolling Stone called it one of the 25 best music memoirs of all time. Well, I appreciated that. And it was we've gotten such uh, amazing responses from the public and from the media. Uh, it's really been really been great. And, uh, you know, Hollywood got shut down for about two and a half years. And, and uh, uh, the bottom line is, though, that uh, uh, the movie is still uh, in the works. And if, uh, Barbara Dufina is going to be producing the film. She produced Goodfellas and uh, Casino and Hugo and uh, just a slew of great movies. And um, who would you like to have uh, play you? I was just going to ask. <laughs> Boy, I'll tell you, I'm, I'm the worst one to ask because I don't know. I'm going to, that's one thing I get asked all the time. I'm going to yeah. have to uh, leave that, leave that to the grownups. But uh, <laughs> what's amazing to me is that uh, uh, the, uh, so many of the, the young actors uh, started out in rock bands. It's amazing. You know, so many of them know how to play guitar and, and can sing because that's what they used to do. And uh, Jamie Foxx really raised the bar 
on these type of movies when he did Ray. Yeah. Yeah. Because, you know, he sang himself and he sounded like Ray Charles. So he really, you know, you can't lip sync anymore and you, you can't re-record things. You, you really, I mean, the, the, the actual actor is going to have to do this. And so uh, yeah. uh, the, the big challenge is going to be to find somebody who plays guitar as badly as I do. <laughs> we, were, uh, we were talking we'll see, we'll about see the, if that happens. the new Elvis film that's coming out in the summer. Stone. That actor is going to have a challenge, right? To sing <laughs> yes, Elvis. Indeed. Well, well, um, Matthew Stone did the screenplay, did a great job, and Kathleen Marshall is going to direct. And uh, yours? Uh, she made her bones on Broadway. Kathleen Marshall so set gonna, to direct your. Pardon me. She set to direct yours, Kathleen. Marshall? Kathleen Marshall. Wow, that's great. And uh, uh, the thing is, uh, it's going to be. It looks like it's going. It, it's going to be a Broadway show after the film. They wanted, they wanted to do the film first because you know if the if the uh, if the play stiffs the movie never gets made so so that's why they want to do the movie first good strategy and I'm with them 100 percent on that yeah I'm gonna be doing all the technical stuff you know the you know it's funny too because so many movies that are made in the six about the 60s and 70s you know, if when they're doing studio shots or something, the equipment isn't right. It's very important to get equipment that, you know, didn't exist in the 80s, you know, that actually existed in the 60s to uh, be authentic. Yeah. Anyway, so the movie's going to be fun to watch it come together. Speaking of equipment, one of our bands that's in our festival asked us to ask you uh, how you came up with the idea to run the vocals through the guitar amp for the special vocal effect on Crimson and Clover. Well, it wasn't, uh, you know, rocket science or anything. We just, I, I did the tremolo guitar, uh, you know, through the amp. It was an Ampeg, uh, I can't remember, but it was an Ampeg amp. And, um, you know, we, the, the, the guitar worked. And I said, well, why don't we try to vocal? See what happens. That'd be kind of an interesting thing uh, on the fade. And so we did it and it became sort of the, the trademark of the whole song and the album. So, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's really amazing how some silly little thing like that can become so important. Right. I've heard you talk about the fact that I think we're alone now and Mirage were, were related to each other. Yeah, that's a true story. Sounds like it was made up by a press agent, but that's an actual <laughs> story. The, uh, uh, Mirage was literally, I think we're alone now backwards. And the way that happened was we, when we finished mixing, I think we're alone now, we took it over to Bo Gentry, Bo Gentry's apartment. He was one of the producers. And uh, back then when you play a tape upside down by actually, if you get it on upside down, it played backwards. So uh, we, we got it on, you know, upside down, I mean, uh, I think we were smoking something and uh, we got it. We got it on upside down and we were listening to it backwards. And we said, you know, that's not a bad chord progression. That sounds kind of cool. So Bo and Richie, Richie Cordell went over in the corner and wrote it wow. backwards, copied down all the chords and wrote them. Uh, you know, they were all backwards and they, they, they wrote this backwards song and it ended up being Mirage, the next single. 
Yeah. So uh, did anybody notice it? Song. Did people ever know the, what the trick was? I had a few that, well, once I told the story, people would listen to it backwards. Right. Yeah. You know, oh, yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> and the funny part is that the guitars, when they played them backwards, sounded like cellos. And so that's what we used on the record was cellos playing the eighth notes. Wow. That's awesome. I'm sure that the yeah. Beatles have right use that tactic in some way too like tomorrow never knows i think they used a lot of backwards tapes um yeah that's awesome i just story yeah i just heard about that and i was fascinated with that i had to go re-listen to both those songs um but speaking of your songs i mean i was re-listening to your new album new album i'm thinking like everything is still three years ago um your 2019 album i'm alive and i just love like all your old songs that are redone either acoustically or remixed like electronically and then you have a few new songs on there and uh i don't know it's just very cool i was i was actually listening to rising water this morning and we have like a beautiful area on site where i was walking through our park where the festival is and they hadn't turned this fountain on and they just turned the fountain on and I was listening to like these waterfall lyrics and I was oh, like, yeah, yeah, I was yeah, hearing yeah. this water and I was like, wow, the fountain's finally on and you'll get to see the site when you come. But um, I was wondering what, maybe what people can expect to hear at Abbey Road on the River, if there's anything off that or maybe a few Beatles songs. Well, we're gonna do, we're, we're gonna do as many of the hits as we can and the amount of time we have. And one of the things we're gonna do is a song from the Alive album. We did a brand new version of I Think We're Alone Now, which was slow and acoustic Mm -hmm. and very much not like the original record. And it's it's gonna be the closing credits in the movie. Uh, You know, when the credits start rolling, this new version of I Think We're Alone Now comes on. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, we're going to do it at the show. Awesome. Great. And uh, we also, that. by the way, we released, it as, we released it as a single. You know, from the live album, we released two singles. And both the album and the two singles went top 20 for us, uh, adult contemporary. After all, I am an adult. So uh, <laughs> at any... Tommy, I think... contemporary. I so think the is, original version of I Think We Alone Now or Think We're Alone Now is we're one of both the versions. great. I, know, I think it's one of the greatest songs in the history of rock and roll. Well, when thank I you hear so it, much. And I hear it. It takes me right back to the time I first heard it. And I was like in well, 11th grade when it came out. And I love wow. that song so much. Well, thank you so much. That's uh, very nice of you to say. It was uh, our fourth single. And um, uh, it's where I teamed up with Bo Gentry, Richie Cordell, and Jimmy Wisner, who arranged it. And uh, they brought me the song. You know, when they originally brought it to me, it was a ballad. And uh, they played it for me. Um, and I, as soon as I heard the hook, I yeah. knew that it was that was that was a smash. Yeah. And so we went in the studio and did a demo, and Bo actually sang the demo. And that's where we came up with the staccato eighth notes, you know, the do, 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 do. And it sort of became the signature sound for that whole album. And uh, we all knew it. We took it back and played it for Morse and uh, uh, he flipped. And we all knew that that was uh, 
that was a winner. And we did the we did the final vocal uh, on Christmas Eve, 1966, and that was a so, great Christmas present. Okay, so I was in 12th <laughs> grade, not 11th, but boy, what a great song! It is. Thank you. Uh, was was Morris a, a, also a great record executive besides the other things? You know, Morris could have been a CEO of any company. Yeah. Any company. He was brilliant at business and he, um, uh, you know, was a big music fan. Uh, the problem was Morris chose the dark side of every situation. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the strange part is I owe Morris a great deal. If it hadn't been for Morris Levy, there wouldn't have been a Tommy James. But, you know, it's, it's sort all... of a left-handed left compliment because, um, of course, getting paid was like trying to take a bone from a Doberman. But That was uh, a painful you know, part that... of the book. Hearing, reading about how he kept shortchanging you was painful to read. You know, well, it's a true story. You know, the thing of it is, when we came to New York to sell Hanky Panky, you know, it, it had exploded in Pittsburgh and was sitting at number one, a record that I had recorded two years before. I was right out of high school and we came to New York to sell Hanky Panky to a major label. This would have been in the uh, spring of 66. And we got a yes from Columbia. We got a yes from RCA, we got a yes from Atlantic, uh, and even remember Kama Sutra Records, you know, the Love and Spoonful and, and, and Artie Rip at Kama Sutra. We got a yes from everybody. And the last place we took the record to was Roulette. And uh, I went to sleep that night. We stayed in, in Midtown Manhattan, and I, I felt so good because I figured we were going to go with one of the big corporate labels. Uh, so the next day, about 9.30 in the morning, I start, we start getting calls. And uh, it was all the record companies that had said yes the day before. They now said, uh, uh, sorry, Tom, we got a pass. And I said, well, what do you mean you got a pass? I thought we had a deal. And finally, Jerry Wexler up at Atlantic uh, told us the truth, that Morris Levy had called all the other labels and said, and scared him, scared him off the record. He said, back off, this is my <laughs> artist. That's just how we talked to him. Yeah. And uh, uh, literally threatened him. So, uh, and, and of course we didn't know anything about Morris Levy back then. And so uh, uh, we were apparently gonna be on roulette records. <laughs> you know, it was the first offer we couldn't refuse. Had no choice. So, uh, you know, we we went to roulette that day and ended up signing the contracts. Everybody else had backed off. And so, but then roulette took it to number one. Number one in the biggest record of the summer is 66 and uh, in the States and, to, and all over the world. And so, uh, uh, and we ended up, we ended up with 23 gold singles at roulette and 110 million records sold all over the world. And so I, I owe Morris a great deal. And if we had gone with one of those uh, corporate labels, I can tell you right now, especially with a record like Hanky Panky, we would have been lucky to have been a one hit wonder. 
That's a great. If we'd point. gone with Columbia for we would you know had so much competition. Yeah. And uh, by big artists and you know if we'd have gone to any of the other labels, so yeah. Roulette actually needed us. Yeah, and having them push it the way they knew how to push. Yeah. That was amazing. <laughs> Yeah. And we're talking push. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Melissa was listening to your uh, rap song about Morris uh, the other yeah. day. I was just going to say, you do such a good impersonation of Morris Levy. <laughs> and it's on that song, Hell of a Ride. Um, yeah, well, I heard him. I heard him enough. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You know, to color no, who it's, was, it's, one more thing. I wouldn't mind having that as the theme for the movie. It's a cool song. I was going to say, is that, that song going to be in the movie? A, I don't know. I, I'd like to get it in. Yeah. Do you, do you think, uh, a lot of people think to color who he was for the audience, that Hessian, the Sopranos, was sort of modeled after him. Is that Oh, true? very definitely. Yeah. Very. Hesh was Moish. They called yeah. him Moish. Yeah. And uh, 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 in fact, Jerry Adler and I know each other and we became friends. The guy who played hash yeah. on the Sopranos oh, wow. and he knew who he was playing. Yeah. Oh, so. as he was doing it. So, uh, you know, he said, you know, there's no doubt about it. They, they had sort of an in-house wise guy, um, uh, you know, uh, directing tr some traffic there on the Sopranos because there's a lot of things in <laughs> the scripts that you yeah. couldn't have known otherwise. And uh, Jerry Adler knew that. <clears throat> we we made yeah well we have a couple of questions from our bands also which i think are awesome which one is sure great? um well joan wanted to know if you've uh if you if if the uh, record companies ever changed any of your songs and or if you were able to do them the way that you brought them in uh no they never changed anything we we basically were given total freedom that's another thing that wouldn't have happened at any other label. If oh, we right. had been <clears throat> at any other record company, they would have turned us over to uh, an in-house A&R guy. And that's probably the last time anybody would have heard from us. Uh, at Roulette, uh, they didn't have anybody doing that. Well, I used to kid, I said, you know, at, you were the at, &R at guy. Columbia, they had these titles, you know, the head of arrangement and repertoire and public relations. At Roulette, it was a guy named Bernie. <laughs> you know so um at any rate uh, uh we were allowed to learn our craft and to uh really learn it at a street level and learn how to write and produce and make make records uh that would have never happened at another at one of the big labels right so yeah. uh, i was always very grateful and you that they had, left us alone you had an open door to the head of the company <laughs> yeah, that's true. You, you that's quite in. true. And and Morris and I would, uh, you know, it's a strange thing. You know, Morris was like sort of an abusive father into college, and uh, <laughs> you know, he, uh, uh, you know, he, he, the abusive father sends slaps the kid around, but sends him to college. And uh, so, you know, that's kind of how it was uh, at Roulette. And I uh, honestly, uh, I have very mixed feelings about it all because uh, like I said, if it hadn't been for Morris Levy and Roulette Records, there wouldn't have been a Tommy James and Shondells. So uh, I am 
grateful, but uh, you know, it's it was it was very cumbersome making music there. You know, I, I don't know if your audience knows this, but uh, in addition to being a functioning record label, Roulette Records was also um, a front for the Genovese crime family in New York, and so that's why all of the uh, uh, you know me the mob and the music title. That's why the provocative title is because it was a kind of a scary place to be. If I had been older and smarter, I'd have probably been a lot more scared. Tommy, uh, changing for a bit, you've always toured, haven't you? Through the whole last 40, 50 years, you've always been yes, on I the have. road. We're just getting ready to do it again. You love touring? And, uh, we start April 30th. Yeah. And uh, I've been very lucky. Very fortunate that uh, health-wise, and uh, that I have my voice, and uh, uh, that uh, the fans have stuck with us all these years. Um, yeah, and we made it. And we have our own label now, and we can put out music when we want to. And uh, uh, you know, so it's just been, as the book says, a hell of a ride. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. What was it like in the last two years? through COVID, did you have to continue practicing? Sure. Well, you know, everything got, everything got shut down. Yeah. And uh, uh, including touring. So that was, and it, you know, it's funny when going back out on the road again, um, uh, it's like an athlete being out of training, you know, physical yeah. training. You gotta, you gotta get your legs back. Mm -hmm. And uh, so this is gonna be our spring training. Any, I. You know, I tell people anything can happen. You know, I may forget the words to hanky panky. It could happen. <laughs> <laughs> well, at Abbey Road on the River, you're going to have a very big audience. It's an outdoor festival. There'll be uh, thousands of people. It's a big stage with big production. And uh, you are the headliner on Saturday, May 28th. And, uh, you know, I, I, I feel there'll be about 5,000 people out there uh, waiting to see you. Uh, All right. Well, we're listening. We're really looking forward to it. And, uh, uh, uh looking forward to seeing you yeah we'll have some barbecued ribs again <laughs> both of you are you gonna be there too are both of you there, gonna yes. be there <laughs> definitely it'll be great to meet you in person yeah. but melissa besides doing the podcast is the co-producer of the festival and she handles oh. most of the band arrangements so yes you'll be seeing uh her and a lot of our other staff we have a pretty good staff and uh, you'll enjoy mm -hmm. working with all of them that's it's great fun. Yeah. Well, listen, it's a, it's a, it's a hell of a festival and I, I really, uh, uh, am very proud to do it. And, uh, I thank you. Yeah. Likewise. Well, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us today. I know you're my pleasure. We really appreciate it. Tommy, stay thank well, you. and we'll talk to you uh, next month. Yeah. Bye-bye. Thanks for tuning in to something will happen. Remember that Abbey Road on the River is happening May 26th to 30th, 2022 in Jeffersonville, Indiana. To start making your plans, head over to AROTR.com. There you can see the full lineup of bands that are coming, check out shows we're planning, book your hotels, and grab your tickets while you're there. Head over to AROTR.com slash podcast and enter your email to get $5 of Beetlebucks to use at the festival for food, drinks, and our exclusive festival merchandise. 
For the most up-to-date information, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. We'll see you in May. Something will happen.